welcome to another episode of the History of Christianity. In today's episode, we're going to be talking a bit about the formation of the canon of the New Testament. In our last episode, we talked a bit about who wrote the New Testament and when it might have been written. We looked at a couple of different ways of dating it. And this time, we're going to figure out how all those disparate books became this one book that you can buy at the bookstore. So the New Testament, of course, is not actually a book. It's a library of 27 books. But why 27? Why these specific 27? How did this come to be? So early on, for the first several hundred years of Christianity, and arguably still even today in some ways, there was no fixed canon of the New Testament. Instead of having a fixed set of books, there were just a whole lot of scrolls. So if you went to a synagogue in the first century, you might hear the Torah read, the first five books of Moses from the Old Testament. You might hear the prophets, so books like Ezekiel or Isaiah. And you might even hear some books from what are called the writings, so Proverbs or Job. But then if you went to a worship service conducted by the Sadducees, you would only have the first five books of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this is because Judaism did not have a fixed canon of scripture. There were different camps within Judaism, as we talked about in our first episode, and they disagreed on what the scriptures were. And even among Pharisees, even from synagogue to synagogue, you would actually have different books read on, in, as part of the Sabbath liturgy. So every synagogue would have an ark, which would be like a cabinet or a basket, where a whole bunch of scrolls were kept. And you would have a scroll that was Ezekiel, and you would have a scroll that was Genesis, and a scroll that was Deuteronomy. And an individual would reader would pull out a scroll and read from that scroll on the Sabbath. Some synagogues had a book like Ruth or a book like Esther, while others didn't. And it wasn't that they didn't have the whole Bible. It's just these are the the scrolls that they had access to. These are the scrolls that they read from. So everyone certainly would have the Torah. Everyone in the Pharisaic tradition would have the prophets. But of the readings, there was a kind of diversity because there was not a fixed canon of Judaism. As we've talked about before, all the early Christians were Jewish. It was a Jewish group that believed they had identified the Messiah and that the Messiah was not just a political leader, but the Messiah was the Son of God, God the Son. And so early Christian worship looked very much like early Jewish worship. And as there was not a fixed canon of the Jewish scriptures, there was also not a fixed canon of the Christian scriptures. But early on, there weren't even Christian scriptures at all. So if you went to an early church worship service you would hear the scrolls of the Old Testament read. You would hear scrolls from the Torah, scrolls from the prophets, and maybe scrolls from some of the readings, books like Proverbs, Ruth, Esther. In a Jewish synagogue service, the readings would be followed by a sermon. And it was just the same in Christianity. Someone would get up and comment on the readings from the Old Testament. However, in a Christian service, the emphasis would not be on the Torah, it wouldn't be on incorporating God's teaching, God's wisdom, God's law into your life. The focus would be on what the Christian saw as the fulfillment of the Torah, who is the person of Jesus Christ. So the sermon would be on the relationship between what you just heard and its fulfillment in the person of the Messiah. 
Early on in the church, there was a specific group of people who would be giving the sermon. And those were the apostles and the disciples. So the apostles, the 12 apostles, the ones you hear about a lot in the New Testament, and the disciples, the 70 who were sent out by Christ, the people who were kind of part of that early band of Christians who were there listening to Jesus' teachings, who saw some of the miracles, who learned straight from his lips, but were not actually among the 12. So you might go to church in Antioch, and you would hear something from Genesis, and then a guy would get up in the front of the Christian synagogue and the house church or wherever the Christian gathering was happening and start talking about Jesus. But this was not just any random guy. This would actually be St. Peter, the rock on whom the church was founded. This guy, Simon, who Christ called from being a fisherman to become a fisher of men, this um, essential part of Christianity. He was the one telling you about Jesus. He would be talking about what Jesus did, what Jesus said, what Jesus taught, and how this related to the Old Testament, how everything in the Old Testament was leading up to this figure of Jesus. Not as a kind of prediction, not as a sort of like weather forecast for when the Messiah would come, but you can actually learn so much that you need to know about who Christ is from the Old Testament, from the early church perspective. Because the Old Testament is primarily about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the subject of the Old Testament for the early church. So elsewhere, the person giving the sermon might be St. Andrew, might be St. Philip, might be St. John, it might be St. Matthew, because the apostles and the disciples went out all over the known world and they founded churches. Thus, in one generation, Christianity spreads all over the Roman Empire because the apostles and the disciples are out preaching and teaching. When an apostle would move on, when Peter would leave Antioch and go to Rome, for example, he would pick out a member of the congregation. And this is not, he's not, this is not like a guest appearance where he comes for two weeks and he's gone. He would be there for years, forming this community. And he would take one member of that community who had specific gifts and a specific dedication, and he would give him as much instruction as he possibly could and eventually ordain him bishop. And that would be the first bishop of a place. So after Peter left Antioch, you would have the first bishop of Antioch giving the sermon in the place of Peter. And this worked in lots of places, but over time, it was felt that some of the apostles needed to actually write down their sermons, write down their preaching, write down their experiences of the words and the deeds of Christ. So you get someone like St. Matthew, who was an apostle, who knew the Lord, writing down, in a sense, his sermons, writing down his good news, his version of the gospel, writing down the gospel of Matthew. You have someone like St. Mark writing down the preaching of Peter, writing down the gospel of Peter. You have someone like St. Luke writing down the preaching of Paul. So you have kind of the gospel of Paul. And then at the end of his life, at the end of the first century, you have St. John writing down his version of the gospel. And as these texts became more and more available, started making the rounds, you would get a portion of the preaching of St. John inserted into the liturgy after the Old Testament reading. So by the 160s, we have an account, so a Christian writing about how Christian liturgy works. And he says that the Old Testament is read, and then a portion of the memoirs of Christ are read. Now, this is not memoirs in the sense of like a famous person who writes down the story of their life. These are memoirs of the apostles. It is the apostles writing down what they remember about Christ, what Christ did, what Christ said, Christ's teaching. It's this memoir of the experience of Christ. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 
by the middle of the second century, which become the memoirs of Christ, and they get added into the Christian liturgy in a sense to kind of replace the preaching of an apostle. And through that, through getting authorized to be read in the liturgy, they, they attain the status of scripture, which previously only the Old Testament had. So at one point in his writing, St. Paul says, he talks about how all scripture is written for, or all scripture is inspired. And what he means by that is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in his own writings. He means the Old Testament, because in the first century, scripture meant the law and the prophets. Even later, in addition to this, you might have a, a community that had received a letter from St. Paul at one point, or maybe from St. Jude or St. James, St. John, St. Peter, and they would start reading that letter, or maybe even kind of Luke part two, Acts of the Apostles, or in some places, even John's Revelation as a kind of addendum to all this. You might have an Old Testament reading, a reading from an epistle or the Revelation or Acts, and then a reading from the gospel, and then you would have the sermon. So at this point, you have this new collection of Christian scriptures, but like Judaism, they're not the same in every place. So the church in Antioch might only have the gospel of Matthew and also the letters of Peter and a couple of St. Paul's letters. And then the, gospel, then the church in Alexandria might only have the gospel of Mark and two different letters of Paul and then the letter of James. So you're reading in each place just what you have. Ideally, you would have as much as possible, but at this time, books were really expensive. To write out all of the stuff on a scroll made of animal skin was a really big investment. This was a costly endeavor. So churches had to sort of get by with the scrolls that they had. So even though there was some agreement, at least by the second century, about what actually constituted true apostolic writing, the stuff that's authentic, the stuff that's actually written by the apostles, not everywhere could afford to get all those scrolls, and certainly there were churches that didn't even know about the existence of some apostolic writing. So in Antioch, you might only know that Matthew wrote a gospel and have no idea that John wrote a gospel. In Ephesus, you might only know that John wrote a gospel and have no idea that Mark wrote a gospel. So depending on where you were in the first century, you might have limited access to specific books of what becomes the New Testament. But over time, as people begin to travel, as people get, begin to share these texts, as wealthy patrons begin to have a text copied out and sent back to the church where they worship, let's say you are a wealthy merchant from Alexandria, you go to Rome, you're exposed to a bunch of Pauline letters you've never heard before when you're, when you're visiting the church there, and you say, is there any way I could pay a scribe to come in here? I'll buy $10,000 worth of parchment and we can copy out this stuff onto scrolls. I'm going to ship them back to Alexandria, give them to my home church. And so over time, people are sharing these letters, sharing the, these gospels, sharing the revelation, sharing acts, and they're building up uh, their own kind of libraries of scrolls in their home churches. But it's this very organic process. We know that for the vast majority of people, it is the books that we now consider the New Testament that are the kind of wide field from which they're picking and choosing, or the wide field from which they're accessing certain individual parts. But then there are also other books which end up getting read in some churches. So you have a book like The Shepherd of Hermas. Hermas, obviously not one of the 12 apostles, not one of the 70 disciples, some guy called Hermas who wrote this book called The Shepherd that was considered such a Christian classic and so important for the introduction of new people to Christianity 
that they read it out loud in the liturgy. And it took a while for that to kind of fall off. You might have a letter from someone like a patriarch, someone like Clement. You might be reading First Clement or Second Clement, which Second Clement may or may not have been written by this Bishop Clement anyway, but uh, this might also be read in the liturgy. And it took a while for that to fall out of fashion. You might also have a text that claims to be of apostolic origin that actually is not. And so eventually some bishops uh, like Serapion discovered that one of his churches was reading this gospel that was not written by one of the apostles. And so after a time, he had to kind of come in and say, you guys, this is not the real deal. Let's set that one aside. Let's stick with Matthew. And so it was kind of an organic process of how this canon formed. If you watch a documentary on somewhere cheesy like the History Channel, or you read some kind of tell-all article in Time magazine, sometimes it'll say crazy things like the New Testament was assembled by people at the Council of Nicaea, or Constantine the Emperor selected the books of the New Testament. This is total nonsense. This does not bear any relation to reality, because it was a much messier, crazier, totally organic process by which these books came together into the one book that we call the New Testament. So in the really early days, in the first century, how do we know who had what? Well, one way is to look at letters written by people in the church, by early Christians, and see what books they're quoting. Because obviously if they're quoting something, they have either a deep familiarity with it or a copy of that scroll. So Ignatius of Antioch, a bishop of Antioch, dies in the year 110. He's martyred in 110, and we have a bunch of his letters. And in these letters, he's quoting the gospel according to St. Matthew, the gospel according to St. Luke. He quotes Acts. He quotes Romans. He quotes 1 Corinthians. He quotes Ephesians. He quotes different letters of Paul. So we know he had access to these. A tiny bit later in that same century, we have St. Polycarp, who dies in 155 AD. And in his letters, he has reference, he has quotations from the gospel according to St. Matthew, the gospel according to St. Mark, the gospel according to St. Luke. He has quotations from Acts, from 1st and 2nd Corinthians, from 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, from 1st Timothy, from Hebrews, from 1st Peter, from 2nd John. So he has all these quotations from different writers of the New Testament. So these guys are both in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and this is kind of the center of the world at this time. This is a very wealthy, extremely important region. So, you know, maybe they have great access to great libraries. They get the bestsellers first before they even come out on the mass market or whatever. But by 200, you can go to Lyon in France, which is not the center of the world. This, the Lyon, France, is extremely far from Turkey, from Palestine, from Egypt, from all of these, these Middle Eastern centers. And in Lyon, you have this guy Irenaeus of Lyon writing around 200, and he quotes virtually every book that we have in the New Testament. I think the exceptions are Second Peter, Third John, and Philemon, and Jude. I may be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But um, with, with a couple of small exceptions, he quotes every book in the New Testament in his writings. So we can say that the 27 books that make up our New Testament, at least by the year 200, have this incredibly wide distribution across the Roman Empire. So why would they read a book like Second Peter in church, but not a book like the Gospel of Thomas? They're really looking at one criteria for whether or not to include a book in a church service. And this is, is it authentic? Is this actually written by someone who was an apostle of Christ, someone who is one of the disciples, 
Or in the case of someone like Mark, someone who wrote down verbatim the preaching of an apostle who had been with the apostle day in and day out, Mark being the translator of Peter. This issue of authenticity of authorship was paramount. There are, in the 19th century German scholars we talked about last time, there are people who have said like, oh, well, this couldn't have been written by John because it's not Jewish enough, which, as we talked about last time, was total malarkey after they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were read just like John. But they would say something like, well, we don't know who wrote it. It was probably the expression of a community. So we'll call it the Johannine community. Uh, we don't know who it's by, but it's definitely not St. John. How do we know? Well, it just it couldn't be St. John. What are the chances? But in the ancient world, there's no record of any of these Gospels going by any name except Matthew, or any name except Mark, or Luke, or John. So from the beginning, they're just called the Gospel according to Mark. They're not called Gospel A, or the Gospel of the City of Rome, or whatever. From the beginning, they have this attribution, and it's this authenticity of the attribution that is the criteria for being included in church services. So writing around uh, 310, 330, sometime in between there, the historian Eusebius talks about what are the authentic books, and he's really questioning the authenticity of various books, and he goes through and gives the ones that he thinks are absolutely, no question, authoritatively, 100% written by the people that they say they are written by, and then he lists some others, that, and he says, well, you know, hard to say. The only ones in our list of our 27 books that he kind of questions are Hebrews. He says, we don't really know who wrote Hebrews. Hebrews doesn't claim Pauline uh, attribution. It doesn't say, like, I, Paul, am writing to you. It just kind of jumps right into the meat of the text. And he also says, well, some people are less definite about the second and third letters of John James, Jude, and the second epistle of Peter. But the vast majority of the church accepts them. Here he's not talking about things that are, have been proved to be written by someone else. He's just saying these are, these are debated letters. So at the time, this canon is still very much uh, in flux. Um, in the West, Hebrews isn't accepted until very late. In the East, Revelation isn't accepted until fairly late. So this is still this kind of organic sorting process. This is after the Council of Nicaea. This is after Constantine is in power. In the year 331, Constantine decides to make this lavish, crazy, amazing gift to the church. And he donates. He ransacks the treasury of the Roman Empire, and he donates to the church 50 Bibles. 50 Bibles. You think, well, that's really not that impressive. What is that, like 12 bucks a Bible? I mean, think of like what the Gideons do for hotel rooms. But in this period, a Bible was an incredibly expensive item. It took thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of animal skin to make the parchment for the paper. You had to pay scribes to painstakingly, carefully write out the, the text of all these texts. It was a very big investment. And so even though Constantine is trying to sort of leave his, leave his great legacy to the church, he's spending an just insane amount of money on these 50 Bibles, scholars think that the list of books in those Bibles may not be our list of books. Or it may be that they have our list of books with some additions. So they might have a text like The Shepherd of Hermas, that this book that doesn't claim to be written by an apostle, but was seen as 
the best introduction to Christianity possible. Such an important book, you couldn't leave it out. And then possibly also these letters from this Bishop Clement. So even though this is kind of, it's the emperor, he's giving these Bibles, he's investing in this major way, it's kind of the most official edition of the Bible ever, it's still not a fixed canon at this point in the year 331. In fact, the East, the Church of the East, the Orthodox Church, they don't ever actually set a canon of Scripture in a council. At one council, they say, we affirm the previously um, instituted canons of Scripture, but then there are a whole bunch of different canons. So they're sort of saying like, oh, well, the canon of Scripture of John Chrysostom, which has different books than the canon of Scripture of St. Gregory the Theologian, we affirm those. But that, that doesn't really mean very much. The differences in those canons are not differences in terms of the Gospels. For everybody, it's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They would laugh you out of the room if you tried to add the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, any of these Gospels, because they were from a different religion. Those were from Gnosticism, which is very different from Christianity. So nobody was trying to add those in. Differences would be around Hebrews, Revelation, the second and third epistles of John, second epistle of Peter. They were, these are the ones that people would say, oh, well, you know, you've, you've been using these over here for 200 years, but we've never heard these and we're not familiar with these. Did Peter actually write a second epistle? So there was debate. There was kind of a free play around some of those books. So the Roman Catholic Church finally did say, okay, this is the official canon. This is, these are the books of the New Testament. These are in, anything else is out. You can't add to it. You can't subtract to it. But they did this in the 1500s. So this is like a thousand years after the period we're talking about. This is the Council of Trent, and they did this only in response to the Protestant Reformation. So that is so far ahead in the future that we don't even count that for the purposes of this discussion. So how is it that eventually all the churches from Ethiopia to India to Turkey to France to Italy to today's United States, to Sub-Saharan Africa, to Papua New Guinea in Japan. How is it that all the churches seem to have one regular New Testament with the same 27 books? This is a process that happened because of two people and a thing. The first person who influenced this process was not a heretic whose book was rejected. Instead, he was a heretic who rejected the other books. His name was Marcion, and Marcion was the son of a bishop, but he was also a big shipping magnate, so he had a tremendous amount of money. He arrives in the city of Rome about 144 AD, and he starts just showering the church with money. At some point, he gives 200,000 sesterces, so this is like, like $3 million or something, to the church at Rome, and everybody's like, wow, this guy's a big deal. So he may have been ordained. We don't know. He might have even been a bishop. There's question about this. But eventually, he sort of gets in good with the church in Rome, and then he starts criticizing everything. And his primary critique is of what they are reading in church, because Marcion hates the Old Testament. And he has this kind of very out there theology, which says that there is not just one God. In fact, there are two gods. There is the God of the Old Testament, who is this, he calls the Demiurge, which is Plato's term for the public worker, this God that kind of makes everything. And then there is the unknown good God. So he would say that the God of the Old Testament, he is angry, he is wrathful, 
he he bargains with people he has legs he walks around in a garden he's he's this very sort of emotional hot under the collar guy who does all these irrational things whereas the god of the new testament the god jesus preaches about is all just love and happiness he's all peace and joy and goodness love mercy all the time and you can't reconcile those two so i've actually heard this argument from people who are not influenced by marcion they just read the Old Testament and they're like, "Woo, this is some harsh, brutal stuff. I'm, I'm not an Old Testament person. I don't really get the God of the Old Testament. How does this even relate to Christianity? And that's a problem that comes from reading the Old Testament radically out of context. Because the Old Testament is not a straight and cut and dry list of logical propositions. The Old Testament is trying to say the unsayable. It's trying to tell you about God, who is infinitely beyond anything we can wrap our minds around. If you try and draw a picture of God, it's going to be a terrible picture no matter what, because you're going to draw someone who looks like Santa Claus or Zeus, or you're going to draw like the blackness of outer space or a field of energy or a rainbow or whatever it is. But whatever you draw, it's not going to be God because God is infinitely bigger than you can wrap your mind around. So the Old Testament uses all sorts of poetic language to try and tell us about God. And when the Old Testament compares God to like a mother hen, or when the Old Testament talks about God walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve, those we usually recognize as metaphor. But for some reason, when the Old Testament talks about the anger of God, the wrath of God, the frustration of God, bargaining with God, we think, oh, wow, okay, I guess that's a literal depiction of what God is like. But these are also metaphor. So the Old Testament talks about God being asleep like one drunk with wine. That's not literal. Like God did not get drunk and fall asleep. This is a metaphor that's meant to convey the experience of a people that think God are, is, is quite absent from them, that he, they are not um, in his sight or he's not conscious of them at all and suddenly he rushes back to life he rushes in and takes action in the same way the depictions of god's anger of god's wrath these are not meant to be literal depictions of god's inner emotional states so if you think that you can do something to make god angry at you that god feels this desire to pour out his wrath upon you or he's just mad at you you don't understand god a, obviously, the nature of God is love. This is what St. John tells us. But B, you don't have that power over God. God is the master of the universe. God is the creator of all things. And if you think you can ruin the creator of all things day by stealing a candy bar or having an affair or cheating on your taxes or whatever it is, that's ludicrous. You don't have that power over God. You cannot make God hot under the collar. In the same way, there is no bargaining with God. So in a story when you have a patriarch uh, and God comes to the patriarch and says, I'm going to destroy that city over there. And the patriarch says, but what if there are 50 good people? And God's like, uh, okay, fair enough. If there are 50 good people, I'm not going to destroy the city. And the patriarch says, what about 20? And God's like, no, I'm not going to give you 20. And the patriarch's like, come on, you know, you want to give me 20. And God's like, okay, fine, 20. And the patriarch's like, what about 10? And the God's like, ah, you win every argument. This is really frustrating. I can't argue with you patriarchs. Fine, 10. That's also not how God works. You can't win an argument with God. You can't even get into an argument with God. So anyway, these are not literal depictions of God's emotional life. 
The depictions of God's anger, depictions of God's wrath, are meant to convey the cause and effect of what it's like when you turn your back on the source of life and choose death, when you turn your back on the source of holiness and choose nothingness, when you turn away from God and towards dead idols, when you refuse to trust in God, things go very poorly for you in the Old Testament and arguably in life as well. Marcion, however, didn't see it that way. He thought this was a literal account of a very testy, angry, jealous, not very good at bargaining God who walked around on two legs. And he was like, this is crazy. I don't want any part of this. So he was furious that the church was reading from the Old Testament in church. Marcion was also extremely anti-Semitic. He thought that Judaism was the worst thing since unsliced bread. So the church was horrified at this because the church has a strong identity as coming out of Judaism as Judaism being the root of the church. Paul says that we are we are branches grafted onto the tree of Judaism. So initially the church is like, what are you talking about, you crazy person? But what's more difficult is that if you are going to read the New Testament, this is written in the context of Judaism, and everything is really about the Old Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. There are constant references on every single page and virtually every single sentence to the Torah, to the wisdom of God, to the revelation of God, to Israel. So if Marcion's going to cut out the Old Testament, he can't just do it by cutting out the Old Testament readings. He also has to cut out the vast majority of the New Testament. For Marcion, this was not a problem. He pulled out his exacto knife, started shredding away St. John, and he's like, I can't get anything out of this. Let's toss that. St. Matthew, nope, definitely not. Out of here. Mark, no, no, no. Terrible, terrible. Let's get rid of that. He does this edit of St. Luke where he gets out everything that in any way affirms anything about the Old Testament or Judaism or actually what we would just think of as Christianity, and he gives that to the church as the legitimate scriptures. And he's like, okay, if you want, if you want something else, I'll tack on slightly edited version of some of Paul's letters. We'll call that the Apostolicon. And so this, this edit of Luke and some minor edits of Paul this is all you get. These are the Christian scriptures. And anybody who is reading anything more, anything like Matthew or John or Mark or um, letter of James or the Revelation or the letter, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then they are in the wrong. They're committing an act of heresy. They are trying to worship this bad creator, God of the Old Testament, who walks around with legs and bargains with people. So the origin of the church moving towards a kind of set universal canon was not actually this origin to get rid of some specific texts which were sneaking into the church. It was actually because a different heretical group was saying the church had it wrong and the church needed to throw out their books. So it was initially this move to affirm the books that were being read all over Christianity. The second challenge also in the same era, in the 150s, a few years later, came from a guy named Montanus. And Montanus was from this little tiny village called Papuza in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Montanus was convinced that he was the voice of God. He said things like, um, like uh, I am but the, li- uh, but the lyre and God is the plectrum, the little pick that picks the lyre and makes the sounds. So most prophets in the Old Testament would say, um, the word of the Lord came to me and 
thus says the Lord God, the way they make these pronouncements, God says, but Montanus thought that he, he would go into these trances and he thought that God was speaking directly through him. So he's recorded as having said, I am the father, I am the son, I am the paraclete. Like he would sort of be like a medium at a seance and God would just speak directly through him such that he believed his words actually trumped or at least were as valid as anything else in the New Testament. So if you want to set a Montanist text and the gospel side by side, for the Montanists, they would basically have the same worth. They would both be this unmediated experience of the Word of God. And so Montanists would come to non-Montanist, regular old Christian churches on vacation, and they'll say to the priest, man, you're missing some books here. You don't have uh, Montanists' latest pronouncements. You know, you're not going to know anything about how the New Jerusalem is actually going to come in the village of Papuza. Forget about the old Jerusalem. And so these priests would be tearing their hair out. Who is this Montanist guy? And, and why is it that people are, are citing these random things that he says as having the authority of Scripture itself? So the church was also frustrated by this, 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 this move to add things to the apostolic writings that did not come from the apostles. So I said there were two people and a thing. And that third thing was one of the most important inventions of the first century. In the first century, in the century in which Christ was born, there was this brand new Roman invention. It wasn't the aqueduct. It wasn't the super powerful spear. It wasn't the amazing ship or Greek fire or anything like that. It was the codex. And the codex is basically the origin of the modern book. So previously, if you wanted to preserve something, you wrote it on a scroll. You killed a whole bunch of cows or lamb or goats or whatever, and you beat their skin into parchment, and you would write out things on a scroll, roll them up, put them in a cabinet. That's how you saved an official document, an official treaty, an official religious text. They were unwieldy. They were huge. There was a lot of rolling and unrolling. The codex was parchment sewn together, and you could write on both sides of the page. You could, you could make these small, portable libraries of books. So before, to have a New Testament, you would have all these different scrolls kind of crammed into the corner of your church or in a basket or something, but now to have a New Testament, you would just put all the books in this one big codex, all of these individual letters, these individual texts into this one pocketable, holdable book. So you had the whole library in one volume. The problem with this is, once it went in, how do you get it out? So let's say um, you put the Shepherd of Hermas in your codex and then the bishop eventually comes along and says, like, why are you reading the Shepherd of Hermas? That's not even written by one of the apostles. It doesn't say it's written by one of the apostles. It's some guy named Hermas. Then it's already in your codex. So people had to start being very careful about what were included in these codices of the Bible. They wanted to make sure they were including all the right books and none of the wrong books. So over time, you still have this continuance of this organic progression in which people are saying, okay, Here's what we read in Alexandria. Here's what we read in Antioch. Here's what we read in Rome. Here's what we read in Lyon. And they're kind of comparing notes and eventually coming together with this organically formed canon of the New Testament. But it's not until the year 367 that we even have one authoritative list that looks like our 27-book New Testament. This list comes from Athanasius of Alexandria. He writes this Easter letter to the dioceses under 
the Patriarchate of Alexandria. And in it, he says, okay, just in case you were wondering, here are the official books of the New Testament. But that's really just applicable to the diocese under his authority. There is also a council that happens in North Africa that gives the same list of 27 and says these are the official books of the New Testament. But that's a council that's really just binding on the churches of North Africa. Never in Christendom is there this one moment where they say, okay, this is it, this is official. Instead, it's really just this organic agreement that these actually are the books authored by the apostles, authored by the disciples, authored by people like Mark who traveled around with an apostle. And this is the authentic teaching of Christianity. This is the authentic revelation of God. This is the New Testament. So I hope that's a helpful little run-through of how the New Testament canon formed. In our next episode, we're going to be looking at early Christian worship. So we now know what people were reading. What were they doing in church? What did it look like to worship in the early church? Thanks for joining me for Church History. 